Grace and peace, you're listening to United We Pray. Taking racial struggles to the throne of grace, United We Pray is a ministry devoted to prayer about racial strife, especially between Christians. We want to help Christians think better about race in a way that is biblical and helpful, clear and hopeful. You can learn more about our work at youwepray.com. That's U-W-E-P-R-A-Y.com, where you can find articles, old episodes, and more. I'm joined today by Dr. Thomas Kidd. Dr. Kidd is, as of very recently, research professor of church history at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, following a 20-year stint as distinguished professor of history at Baylor University. He is the author of a number of books, including George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, and the book we are going to discuss today, Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. And be sure to check out our social media platforms because we will be giving away several copies of this book in the coming weeks. So, Dr. Kidd, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I have to tell you that I enjoyed reading this book uh, as much as I've enjoyed reading anything in a long time. You're an excellent writer, and you strike me as very fair-minded in how you deal with such a complicated figure. Um, But I'll start with this question, which is what I've asked every author we've had on this year. Why did you want to write this book? Sure. Well, you know, Thomas Jefferson is is arguably the most controversial of the founding fathers uh, these days. And there's a lot of controversy over the founding fathers generally, uh, often regarding slavery. And most of the founding fathers owned slaves. Even some of the northern founding fathers, we often forget that Benjamin Franklin owned slaves for much of his life, too. But Jefferson is more complicated on this issue and controversial because he's the one who said all men are created equal in the Declaration of Independence. Um, And he also uh, readily acknowledges uh, that slavery is immoral, but he doesn't do very much at all to free his own slaves. Um, And and then he also, we are almost certain that he has a long-term sexual relationship with one of his enslaved uh, women, Sally Hemings. Um, and, And so, uh, he he seems to be the 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 focus of the the kind of controversy over the founders and slavery and race uh, that that we've been having uh, for a while now in American culture. But I, I think in in light of the of the killing of George Floyd and and so forth, I mean that there's there's really been uh, heightened levels of controversy, uh, almost unprecedented levels of controversy over the founders and and these types of issues. And so. Uh, I, I feel like that there's a contribution that I could make about answering this sort of, you know, how could he question, which which may be at the center of a lot of these controversies. Um, in, in other words, how could he say that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and then live the way that he did? And, and um, of course, you know, a lot of people have answered that question of just saying, well, he was a hypocrite. And and I, I think that that's probably true to a certain extent, but historically that doesn't get you very far as, as far as understanding the sort of moral universe that he inhabited. And so I'm, I'm really in this book trying to under, understand his, his, his moral uh, and ethical code, as it were, uh, the, the culture that he lived in and certainly not to try to justify Jefferson at all, um, but but maybe to try to understand him a little bit more in his religious and ethical and cultural context, and maybe to 
to see why what he was doing probably did make sense in a way to him, uh, even though even for a number of people who knew him at the time, uh, they they thought there was very severe contradictions in terms of what he said he believed and then the way that he lived. We write in your introduction, this is a biography of a brilliant but troubled person. And that was something I found so fascinating working through it is just trying to figure out how all of this made sense together in his in his head. And I think you did a good job piecing from his writings and conversations with others how how he could have made sense of what seemed like inconsistencies. You mentioned this controversy with the founding fathers and and how they get evaluated in the light of today's standards. That sort of task of evaluating historical figures happens in a number of settings, right? There's the most surface level settings where you know, folks talk about it on Twitter. And then there's another more complicated setting in which public policymakers or city managers have to determine who from history is worth celebrating. But in our case, our ministry is concerned to answer these questions in the context of multi-ethnic churches. So for example, should we encourage our church members to read books by people who were slaveholders, knowing that might be a stumbling block? So as you set out to examine Jefferson, were you concerned to develop a particular narrative about him and how you wanted people to think about him? Sure. Well, and, and I think that this problem for Christians is is really more acute in a way for people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Right. And uh, and I've done a biography of George Whitfield somewhat along the same lines of of trying to understand him as a, as the most important evangelist of the 18th century, but also as a, as a slaveholder. And so I guess one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is is including for Christians, but but obviously, you know, I'd be happy for secular folks to read my book, too, is is to think about um, the the way that Americans and American Christians in particular have have tended to go to one extreme or the other about. Uh, the founding fathers with re- regard to religion in particular and and that is on the christian side often to try to wedge the founding fathers into a kind of evangelical framework uh, and there have been popularizers who've even tried to put jefferson into that framework um, and and I think that that is an impulse that we we should avoid um, it, it, unless the founding father in question happened to be an evangelical, someone like Patrick Henry, for instance, who, who I also have done a biography on. But, but uh, you know, with Jefferson, there there is no burden for evangelical Christians to carry as far as a fellow evangelical who owns slaves. So, so in, in some ways, part of what I'm trying to do is, is to understand what Jefferson meant when he said, which he did somewhat regularly, you know, I am a Christian. And and it, it this is Jefferson's, after a, a long period of, I think, pretty intense skepticism about Christianity, is he ultimately resolves his beliefs into a, a kind of unitarian, nat- naturalistic, naturalistic sort of Christianity that he, he regarded as, as uh, in accord with Jesus's original teachings. Um, and he thought that that Jesus was not the Son of God uh, and was not divine and that he did not rise from the dead, um, but that he, he came to believe that Jesus was uh, not just a great moral teacher, but the greatest moral teacher in world history. 
Um, and so, and so Jefferson uh, believes in in Jesus in an entirely kind of ethical and naturalistic sort of way, but sets aside the the claims of of supernatural power and and those those kind of things that Je- that he believed Jefferson believed that Jesus's followers in, in the generations after Jesus's death had imposed on him in the Bible, uh, and, and and so. I say all that to say that that um, if if you accept what I'm I'm saying about uh, what sort of Christian that that Jefferson was, and in an orthodox sense, I don't think he was a Christian at all. Um, but uh, that that one of the things I'm trying to do for an evangelical audience is to explain what his beliefs actually were, and that he was not a fellow even evangelical, unless you think that somebody who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ can be an evangelical. Uh, and, and so then I think that there is intersecting with, you know, what, what should we think about the founding fathers from a religious perspective if uh, the, that kind of evangelical popularizing version is, is not right? But the, I also don't think the kind of secular polemical view of Jefferson is right, which which would say, you know, that that he's a totally secular person, that he's formed by the secular enlightenment, that maybe he he's even a kind of a closet atheist, which he's he's absolutely not an atheist. That's that is, to be some people have tried to argue that even you know scholars of Jefferson have occasionally tried to argue that, and I think that's totally wrong. Uh, he he is deeply formed by the Bible. He's devoted to the Bible after a, a certain fashion, uh, so much so, and we may talk about this eventually, that he he uh, creates his own version of the Gospels, which we call the, the Jefferson Bible. And he wouldn't be able to do that if he wasn't deeply conversant with the text of Scripture, uh, which which he is. And so, and so I'm, I'm trying in a way to get past the sort of stereotypes and the polemics about Jefferson as secular or Jefferson as evangelical and take him in terms of his own time and place and culture. Well, it's so interesting to me because, as you say, he clearly valued the Bible and revered Jesus as a moral teacher to some example. And, of course, he did away with the um, – you know the the miracles and the resurrection in his own version, but it wasn't. It, it it was a little worse than that, right? Because you wouldn't think that someone who revered the ethical teachings of Jesus would do the kinds of things he did. You know, as it relates to slavery, right? Right, and and what, so when Jefferson, you, you know, says probably most famously in Notes on the State of Virginia, which was the first, the only full length book that he ever published. And he, he, he said in that, uh, when he was talking about slavery, he said, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice will not rest forever. This is one of the most sort of starkly providential things that he ever said. I mean, he's, he's basically forecasting that the judgment of God is going to fall on America for the sin of slavery. And so you think, well, so somebody who thinks that like should be anti-slavery as a practical matter. But, but his anti-slavery convictions really remain almost exclusively theoretical. And, and you know, why is that? Well, I mean, wh- one of the reasons is because Jefferson is, uh, is convinced that there's really nothing that Americans, white Americans, can safely do to get rid of slavery. I mean, he, he at one point says, you know, we have the wolf by the ear. 
Um, and, and the, you know, we can't safely let it go, but we can't safely keep holding it. And so the, we're, we're sort of in this bind where he thinks that if you have a kind of mass emancipation of the slaves very quickly, that that will lead uh, inexorably to a genocidal race war in America between whites and blacks. And he doesn't know how that would that would uh, turn out, whether whites or blacks would win, would win that war. Um, and, and because he knows that the slaves hate being slaves. I mean, that, that's why he thinks there'll be this this war and there's so much resentment and a- racial animosity that results from slavery. Um, so, uh, it, you know, he he sees a lot of the moral problems with slavery, but but he does he I, I think making excuses, he he says, you know, there's really nothing practically politically that we can do about this. Um, but it's also the case on a personal level that Jefferson is a total disaster financially on a personal level, uh, just just totally crippled by personal debt. And so there, there's no way that he's going to do anything about freeing his slaves because all he can think about for most of his life is how he's going to pay off his creditors. And so the, the idea of him freeing his slaves, especially most of them, you know, before he he dies, or and and by the time he he dies, I mean his creditors are in control. There's no choice of being able to free most of his slaves, and, and so he is really, uh, even if he wanted to, he really is not a, in a position to be able to act uh, decisively against slavery, personally and politically. There, there's very little that that he can do in a in a context in Virginia that's dominated politically by slaveholders. Whenever an American historical figure comes up who has sort of demonstrated multiple instincts in the way that Jefferson has, you hear the argument, you know, oh, he was a man of his time. And with Jefferson, you use the metaphor of a pillow for his relationship to slavery at various points in his life, um, how he was carried on a pillow by a slave at a very young age, and how that sort of follows him for his life, and how at various points, slaves end up paying the price for many of his appetites. But as a man of his time, it wasn't like he wasn't confronted with this hypocrisy, even in his own life. It seems like the Lord gave him plenty of Nathan-like figures to call him out. How did he respond or attempt to reconcile these inconsistencies when he was confronted on them? Right. So, uh, you know, I think that one of the ways to think about that, this man of your time issue, is whether it is realistic that a, a person like Jefferson, you know, would have known about the, the, the realized the immorality of slavery, and been able to act upon it. You know, I, I think with someone like Whitfield, for instance, to compare him to Whitfield, I mean, Whitfield did have a few people confront him about the immorality of, of slavery, but I, I do wonder what would have happened if Whitfield had lived about thirty years later than he did. Because it's after Whitfield's death, for instance, that John Wesley comes out against slavery, that John Newton comes out against slavery. Some people that I think he would have been likely or more likely to listen to. Jefferson, I think, has a, a few more people in his life than Whitfield did who confront him about the inconsistency. I, I mean, Jefferson clearly is capable of understanding that 
slavery is immoral in his cultural context because he he acknowledges that it's immoral in both Christian categories and the categories of you know the so-called enlightenment, which tend to be more secular, but but still focus on human dignity in in ways that are contrary in many cases to uh, slaveholding. But there are people in Virginia uh, who had been slaveholders. Um, who out, often, out of Christian conviction, free their slaves en masse and then invite Jefferson to join them in, in doing this. And, and Jefferson's response usually is uh, to say, well, sort of good for you. Um, it, you know, the, it, it'll, it will be great when we can all do this. And I will pray, you know, that, that this is, you know, accomplished at some point in the future. Uh, interesting that Jefferson routinely tells people like this that he'll pray for them. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that Jefferson actually did somehow pray about these sorts of things in, in spite of his naturalistic version of Christianity. Um, but but uh, so I, I think, you know, to say that he was a man of his time, I mean, he certainly was, but that doesn't mean that he couldn't have conceived of how to take action personally against slavery um, or to to politic uses political influence uh, to back uh, campaigns for emancipation of, of the slaves. He he undoubtedly could have done more personally and politically than than he did. Now I do have to say, I mean, he he was president when and when he and signed the the measure banning the the f- further importation of slaves from outside the United States that went into effect in 1808. It was the earliest possible date that the Constitution allowed that. So it's not right to say that, you know, Jefferson didn't do anything about slavery. But by that point, the slave population, especially in Virginia, had already become easily self-replicating. Virginians had more slaves than they really knew what to do with. Uh, So cutting off the, the, you know, future importation of slaves was not that big of a deal politically by 1808. But still, it I mean, it, it was a step that had to be taken, and Jefferson did. There was another interesting wrinkle I wanted to... Interesting is probably the wrong word for it. Sad or tragic, I guess. This is a man who wrote some of the highest ideals for humanity's universal rights and grounded those in our relationship with a common creator. But he also viewed black people as inferior to white people. Can you explain how he got there? Sure. And he, uh, in notes on the state of Virginia, he, he said some of the most notable and, and also awful things that he ever said about uh, what, what he thought about the inherent inferiority of uh, Africans and African-Americans. Um, and he, he uh, said that, that they were intellectually inferior and he, and he explained some things about that. But, but the question comes, you know, well, how could that be if all men are created equal, right? And and he actually uh, notes on the state of Virginia is about eight years after the, the Declaration of Independence. And he actually speculated in that book that God might have created the races at different times. Uh, and, and so he, he kind of Im- implicitly is undermining or questioning the, the Genesis narrative of the common creation of humankind. Um, and it, it seems like Jefferson certainly didn't believe in the literal uh, historicity of Adam and Eve and, and that creation narrative. But uh, Jefferson, that was a, a, one of a few things that he said in notes on the state of Virginia. 
that was uh, kind of anti-biblical. And, and he really had a, a terrible time living those comments down, uh, you, you know, proposing the possibility of polygenesis, you know, not, not humankind not being created all at the same time with Adam and Eve. Um, but, but that made sense to Jefferson if you believe that, that especially Africans and African-Americans are inherently inferior to whites, then you have to have some sort of biblical explanation uh, or reference to creation about explaining how that could be. Um, and for Jefferson, it was the possibility of polygenesis. And, and uh, traditional Christians beat him up over that for the rest of his political career. But, but uh, uh, that, that seems to be, I don't think it was a hard conviction that Jefferson had, but he, he played so fast and loose with the biblical narrative uh, that he was willing to propose uh, you know, separate creations for whites and blacks. Well, it's funny you mentioned the playing fast and loose with with the text of Scripture. There was an account in the middle of the book where he's writing to his daughter, and he he misquotes a verse, um, but he says, "None of us, no one is perfect. Were we to love none who had imperfections in this world, uh, none who had imperfections, this world would be a desert for our love." I was going to ask you. Do you, th and I understand this is conjecture, do you think his selective reading of the Bible sort of allowed him to be comfortable in his own inconsistencies because the Bible says none of us are perfect? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be, you know, careful about this because, I, you know, there's all kinds of ways to mess up religion and, and you know, biblicism. So, I mean, when you look at somebody like Whitfield, I mean, he has a very traditional view of the Bible, but you know, displays some of the same types of inconsistencies that Jefferson does. So I'm not I'm not saying that Jefferson's views inevitably lead to the kind of life that that he led. But I, I will say that that um, it is quite conspicuous that Jefferson, you know, puts all this emphasis only on the ethical teachings of Jesus and believes that you can literally cut out the rest. Uh, which he did from from the Gospels uh, with scissors, right? He actually cuts things, uh, you know, the resurrection and stuff. He cuts it all, all the rest of it out. And yet, you, I, I think even a, a secular person would look at Jefferson's moral life, and and say that according to kind of basic biblical ethics, that it just doesn't meet the standard. Um, in terms of, you know, the way that he treated slaves and, and the, the way, you know, there's a lot of issues about his relationships with both white and black women that were highly problematic. Uh, he, he's a total disaster financially. Um, you know, there was just lots and lots of problems, but I don't see when it, when he ever used Jesus's ethics as a way to sort of test his own, uh, way of living. And, and, uh, you know, it's not realistic that he would have done that. Franklin did that sort of thing. I mean, Franklin famously has this list of virtues, you know, that he kind of kept a journal about and said, you know, I did well today on honesty and frugality and those those kind of things. Um, and and Franklin was not always consistent, especially in his relationship with women. But but it it does make you wonder. Uh, and one of the questions that I was left with in this project is just what what good did Jefferson's 
kind of professed commitment to Jesus's ethics do in his life. And I mean, you can point to some things. He he was an unusually charitable man, I think, in terms of giving to uh, lots of different kinds of churches, for instance, in, and and that in spite of the fact that he was a disaster financially. I mean, he he kept giving to charity f- throughout his his life, uh, uh, you know, to the poor and to churches and and so forth. So, I mean, th- that probably, if he was forced to answer this question, I mean, he, that would probably be one place that he would look. But but in terms of integrity about the G- Jesus's types of ethics, I don't. I think one of the reasons I see his religious life as a failure is that I don't see how he applied Jesus's ethics in practical ways in, in terms of his everyday life. And that's a good warning for all of us, right? Yeah. I love how you ended the book in kind of an ironic twist that maybe even Jefferson would have appreciated. The abolitionist movement appropriates some of Jefferson's best ideas in their effort to end slavery. Do you see this as kind of a redemption arc for Jefferson or a kind providence of God or some combination of both? Well, I think I think that it, you, the way that you see Jefferson's ideas, especially all men are created equal, being employed for the rest of American history uh, in all kinds of civil rights movements, including anti-slavery uh, Lincoln, you know, says that that it, I mean, basically, that all men are created equal is the meaning of America, and and uh, and the Gettysburg Address, and then you go on down through Martin Luther King says that that all men are created equal is America's creed. It's so so the, the the there's a power inherent within Jefferson's ideas, uh, most obviously in the in the Declaration that sort of extends out beyond him and and overcomes and 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 succeeds his his manifest uh, ethical and, and moral failings um and and i do think that that is a kind of common grace good gift to to america and to the world that the argument that all men are created equal and that they're equal because of their common creation by god is the most powerful argument for human equality that the world has ever seen. Um, And so that's why it's gotten picked up by so many different people across world history, but most obviously in American history, um, and done great good uh, in spite of Jefferson's manifest problems. And so one of the reasons why I would not want to you know, just completely abandon and forget or, you know, cancel as we talk about these days, Jefferson and his legacy is because of the way that this kind of multivalent way that you can see how Jefferson's beliefs and ideas and writings have been used for great good in spite of the problems in his own uh, biography. So I, I do think that that is a kind of common grace deal that that his brilliance it's just undeniable brilliance and and uh, the power of his argument for human equality uh, had lived on and took on new forms well beyond his his death. I really appreciated that in this book and in your approach because you don't you you thread the needle between glossing over his sins or throwing out his good ideas completely because he was personally inconsistent. I thought you did a very fair job with that. So thank you. Last question I have for you, just in thinking about Christians engaged in this kind of complicated work of evaluating historical figures, whether they're inside of the church or out, um, are there tools or methods or attitudes that you would encourage people to keep in mind as they do that work of evaluating? 
Sure. Uh, I mean, a couple things is is one that when we look at people like the founding fathers, I think we definitely should resist the temptation to to try to turn them into evangelical Christians. Uh, I mean, some of them were, but it tends to be a little bit lesser known founding fathers. The top tier, you know, tend not to be evangelicals or they're pretty reserved about their own faith and and so forth. And and you know, the the gospel has to remain the most important thing for for evangelicals. And, and, and so, you know, fitting the, the founding fathers because of, you know, the priority of civil religion or whatever uh, into an evangelical mode, I think is, is a mistake because it, especially in the case of people like Jefferson, it, get, it puts us in a position where we say someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection, it, you know, is, is you know, uh, uh, an insider with, with us. This is a bad idea theologically and historically. Um, but but I do think that there's a way to thread the needle, as you suggested, with with people like Jefferson. I mean, uh, I, I think anybody rightly should be troubled by the inconsistencies uh, and and probably most obviously his, his longstanding relationship with Sally Hemings. Uh, it's 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 deeply troubling, deeply problematic ethically, and that's and that's probably putting it nicely. Um, but I, I also think that that we should be humbled by this. So, and I think the problem of the way that we we uh, denounce historical figures on social media and on Twitter and so forth is it almost seems like we've become a people who sort of demonstrate our own morality by denouncing the right people in the past. Um, and I, I don't. Th- that's a pretty paltry kind of morality and virtue, I think. And 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 one of the things I I remind my students. Uh, often is to is to just keep in mind that if if you or I had been born into a slaveholding family in 1776 or something we almost certainly would have died as a pro-slavery person I mean I, I and and I you know I, that's humbling that's that's chilling to think about that um, but it, it's it's the way things work historically and it just shows how how you know tied up we are with cultural assumptions and uh, the context in which we grow up, and so I, I, I think it's better to be humbled by uh, people in the past who made, uh, you know, who did terrible things, and, and even in the name of Christianity, that if we had lived their life, we might have done the same thing too. And and uh, I think if we think that that's not possible, then we're not thinking about the matter historically. Yeah, and have too high opinion of ourselves. Yes. Well, brother, thank you again for this book and and for all the thought and hard work you put into it. Um, Would you mind opening us in a word of prayer or starting off and I'll close us and we can just pray for fruit from this book and for good thought as it relates to these things? Sure, I'd be glad to. Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to talk about these important issues and hard issues. Um, they're, they're culturally difficult for us, uh, and we want to be humbled by the past. We want to be humbled by people like Thomas Jefferson and uh, the, the, the sin and, and just limited vision that he had with regard to slavery. But we also don't want to build ourselves up in denouncing others. I, I, that's seems like an unseemly thing for Christians to do. So I, I pray, Lord, that as we consider these issues, that that you would bring out Christ-like humility in us and a willingness to, to learn and to change where we need to change and to grow more into Christ-likeness. And I pray you would help us, Lord, in our areas of weakness. 
Father, thank you for my brother. Thank you for all the work he put into this and the careful thought. Lord, we pray that you would use this book and others like it to help us have better conversations with our friends and in our churches, knowing that there is still hurt um, and still ongoing strains from sins of the past. Lord, we just pray that we would have these conversations sensitively and thoughtfully and humbly, as my brother has prayed, and that you would use the example of such a brilliant mind and tragic figure as Jefferson to encourage your people to to examine themselves and think about how, uh, whether our religion is is true and changing us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Uh, check out our social media platforms as we will be giving away a few copies of Dr. Kidd's book. And as always, you can find more about our ministry at the website at youwepray.com. Grace and peace. Oh.